Good evening, everyone, uh, here in Praxis. Um, yeah, uh, I'm glad I'm able to see all of your faces uh, one more time. Uh, as you've heard, this is my, my last week, um, but I won't get too emotional. Um, uh, I think I'm a tough guy, but uh, we'll see about that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's really just a joy to see all of your faces one last time. It's a privilege to be with all of you. I'm thankful that I get to open up God's word uh, and savor Christ with all of you through the preaching of his word. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. If you're unsure of where the Gospel of Mark is, look in the Bible. Maybe you're a newcomer. You're wondering, like, who's this guy up here? Um, uh, this is my last week here. And if you don't like this, don't worry. Things are going to be much better because... Uh, Pastor Allen will take care of you, uh, a dear brother, and like a good neighbor, Pastor Allen is there. <laughs> you are insured. Um, but the Gospel of uh, Mark is located um, right after Matthew, the second New Testament book, uh, a little bit more than halfway, or more than halfway in your Bible. And so we're going to be focusing on uh, the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, the Gospel of account of Mark, out of all four Gospel accounts, is known as a fast-paced Gospel. The Gospel of action that moves rapidly through narratives, uh, often using transition words like immediately or, or then, uh, in order to indicate movement. Uh, and in doing so, we get important snapshots of Jesus as the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus comes to demonstrate his authority, his, his power as a son of God who's heralded as the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. He's the one who is mightier than the last New Testament prophet that comes before him, namely John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist sees the worth and the value of Christ when he says, after he who comes, or after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Mark chapter 1, verse 7. And Jesus quickly ushers into the scene. Jesus is baptized. Jesus is tempted by Satan, but does not give in and overcomes the schemes of the evil one. Then Jesus begins his ministry by calling his first disciples. One of those disciples is Peter, a fisherman. And Jesus calls to him saying, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, uh, they left their nets and followed them. Mark chapter 1, 17 to 18, along uh, with Peter was James and John. Uh, there's something astonishing, uh, yet beautiful through the simple response of Peter, James, and John. How they dropped their preparations to go fish as their main occupation, or what they were preoccupied with at the moment, in order that they might follow Jesus, as well as call others to follow after him. And so as the Gospel of Mark continues, uh, Jesus performs healings, he performs miracles, teaches crowds, speaks in parables, and rebukes the religious Pharisees. And then we come to our chapter, Mark chapter 8. After Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida, Jesus has an intimate conversation with his disciples as they journey toward a village. And this is one of the key moments where Jesus asks his disciples a very important question about their understanding of Jesus' identity. He's essentially asking them a question to reveal how much they know about Jesus, the Jesus they claim to follow. 
It's one thing to claim to believe and follow after Jesus, but do you even know the person you claim to believe and follow after? And Jesus does this by asking, who do you say that I am? Peter, a spokesperson for the rest of the disciples, is quick to respond and says, you are the Christ. And this is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Now that the disciples have correctly identified him as the Messiah, that is the Savior, the rest of the Gospel focuses on answering the question, well, what did Christ come to do? And what does that mean for us who follow him or his original disciples? What is the essence of being a Christian, of Christian living? What is the marrow of Christian life for us now that we have received the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone? How does our union with Christ express itself in a relationship with God now that we are reconciled with him? And my goal is to give you a sense of the connection between a faith that saves and a faith that leads to good works that we are called to walk in. And so, Praxis, this message is about what the gospel means for you if you have not placed your faith in Jesus or believed in the good news. However, this message is also about what the gospel means for you as a believer who follows after Jesus, which is most of you in here. So please uh, follow along as I read our passage Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Uh, Then I will begin our time with a word of prayer. Mark chapter 8, verses 31, verse 38. And he began teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the inerrant and authoritative word of God. Please pray with me. Father, there are perhaps a lot of hard things said in this passage. Um, Things that demand and require of us to, to slow down, to just pause for a second the claims that Christ, your Son, is making the claims about what it means to follow him as we consider whether he's worth it or not. But of course we know that he is worth it and your son following after him is better. But I pray that as your spirit illuminates this truth, brings forth clarity in tonight's message, Lord, that we would have a greater sense of areas we still fall short in following after Jesus, in failing to see where he that he is best, 
that he is the greatest Lord. And following after him is the best investment, uh, the best thing we could ever pursue in our lives. Uh, Just in light of the truth of the gospel, Lord. In light of the grace and mercy that we have received from a gracious and kind God. So help us to behold marvelous and beautiful things through your word this evening. We ask for your spirit's help upon tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Investments. How many of you have ever asked or thought to yourself, I've made the best investment in my life, and it reaped dividends. It paid off. I know for myself, when I think of investments, I naturally think of, oh, stock market, right? Because I was a business major, uh, finance. And when you're thinking about investments, where to place your money in, where to place your, your, your time in just uh, studying, you're looking at what is the potential payoff, right? What is the potential benefit? But what are the pros and cons? Well, what are the risks? And But we don't even make these decisions just when it comes to the stock market, because maybe half of you probably don't really care about that, which, which is fine. But we make investments every day in our life. Investments in friendships, relationships. Uh, investments into uh, studying for school or a potential career. And in all things, we're weighing the costs. We're weighing the benefit, potential payoff, the risk, the reward. And we go about making decisions every day in life like this. Well, I want to propose to you that in our text, Jesus is really challenging his disciples as well as everyone else he's speaking to in the crowd about the greatest investment that they could ever make in their life, and that is to follow after him. But we do know that that is not always the case with everyone, nor is it the case to maybe some of you tonight who may be just visiting or anyone else who maybe walks through and comes through uh, the doors of church on a given Thursday or a given Sunday. Yet this is the greatest investment that you could make in your life, to follow after Jesus. But there are requirements, right? Just like you make an investment. Are you sure you know what you're getting yourself into, right? Maybe you have to sign on an investment, know the risk beforehand. Well, the same applies here, but in a greater extent. Jesus wants us to consider the investment of following after him, But it also comes at a cost. It also comes with some caveats, some requirements for us to consider. And it's not that we're saved by works. It's not that we enter a relationship with God and are justified by what we do. But if we have faith and we have trusted in him, then that changes the course of our life. That transforms us absolutely and totally day by day. Because this, following after Jesus, being saved, just as Christ has saved us, the response, the, the, the worshipful response begins a, a, a life of investing in following after him. And so that is the, 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 the framework, the, 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 the angle that I want us to see this passage today, which brings us to the key idea. And the, what we're going to be looking at is that following Jesus may seem like a life-demanding investment, but it's the best one you can make in this life. And we're going to look at three foundational realities for following after Jesus. The first one is this. It requires you to see Christ rightly. Verses 31 to 33. 
requires you to see Christ rightly. In verse 31, if you're looking in your Bibles, we find Jesus teaching what it means for him to be the Messiah. The Messiah means anointed one. He is the promised king to deliver and save his people. But being a Messiah who saves his people isn't all roses and flowers. He doesn't paint a, a rosy picture of a, a victorious savior who conquers and achieves victory without any opposition, without any suffering, or without any difficulties. In fact, to properly understand Jesus as Savior, his saving work must be understood rightly. And Jesus says four things that must happen. Four things that must happen to him. Four things that we must see rightly about Jesus. First, he must be rejected. Second, he must suffer. Third, he must be killed. And four, he must resurrect to life three days later. All of these things are necessary. All of these things must happen because this was, was a destiny of the promised Messiah in order to save his people. It was all planned by God from the beginning. So if these things do not happen as prophesied, then we have no gospel. We have no promise that can save. This is just another guy who's going to be crucified on a cross. And so in the wisdom of God, it was all part of his sovereign plan of redemption. And as verse 32 says, Jesus spoke about sufferings with his disciples plainly. It wasn't concealed or hidden. This was always what the scriptures has taught concerning the promised Savior. And Jesus laid it all out. This information wasn't in a password-protected, encrypted file where you needed the right permission levels. It was available for, for all his followers to see, to, to see and view. It was provided with great clarity. And Jesus wasn't playing hard to understand professor who's more confusing than helpful. Maybe some of us have had an experience like that. What must happen to Jesus in order to save people rang clearly in Peter's ears. So we know that when Peter rebukes Jesus, it isn't because Jesus was being, uh, it wasn't because he wasn't being clear or expects his disciples to accept something vague. So that leaves us with the question, what in the world could possibly give Peter a reason to rebuke Jesus? All Jesus did was simply state what must happen to him, his rejection, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. That's all that Jesus has said. Yet Peter thinks that is worthy of and warrants a hearty rebuke. A rebuke is not, uh, isn't an, hey, excuse me, Jesus, did you um, maybe make a mistake about what you came to do? No, a rebuke is a strong disapproval. It's a strong correction that basically says to the person you're rebuking, you're wrong. That's not right. To rebuke is to accuse someone of wrong. And that's, what, that's exactly how Peter responds to Jesus. It's as if Peter says, Jesus, whatever your plan is to, to, to save, to, to deliver me, this talk about rejection, suffering, you getting killed, you rising, I, I don't know where you're getting at, Jesus, but it doesn't need to happen. And so after Peter's rebuke, Jesus responds with a rebuke of his own. In verse 33, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
Notice when Jesus rebukes Peter, he doesn't say Peter is setting his mind on Satan's interests, but man's. Yet Jesus first says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So what's going on here? How should we understand the relationship between Satan, God's interests, and man's interests? First, the rebuke. When Jesus basically calls Peter Satan because his thoughts, his thoughts are going against God. Satan means adversary, opponent of God. And that is exactly how Peter is thinking and acting. His human perspective is at odds with God's perspective, with God's thoughts. And Peter rejects God's divine purposes and how God accomplishes salvation and how God will save through his suffering son. Why them? I can think of one reason. Because it is written that the promised Messiah would suffer and die. And if that, why, that's why it's so important that this must happen, even though Peter could not swallow that truth. And if that promise, that statement is made, it must come to pass. The scriptures cannot be broken. The divine, the unchanging, the predetermined script of Jesus' life has been written and is not subject or suggested uh, any edits or revisions that are allowed. You, you don't have any rights to be an editor of Jesus. And so you don't have the right to, be, uh, to revise Jesus to your own liking. Uh, Jesus isn't your little pony. At the heart of Peter's failure as a follower is a failure to see Christ rightly. His inability or unwillingness to accept a Jesus that suffers and dies actually teaches us a very important principle. And that's this. In inability or refusal to accept Jesus as a suffering savior is really at the heart of the matter, a refusal of God's sovereign will because it doesn't conform to your human expectations or it doesn't conform to what you desire and think. Peter, just a few verses before, said Jesus was the Christ. Yet here he rebukes Jesus. Why? Well, it's because Peter is setting his mind on man's interests, human interests, his own personal interests. In other words, his mind isn't on God's interests. Peter doesn't uh, approve of a Jesus that suffers and dies because that's not his own agenda. When we do not accept Jesus on his terms, it's because we have our own agenda, our own will, our own desires. And when Jesus doesn't, uh, his agenda doesn't align with ours, we too disapprove. We do not trust. We treat Jesus as a means to an end. And perhaps that was what Peter was doing here. Following after Jesus is preconditioned on whether it aligns with what he can get out of it, what you can get out of following him. And when it doesn't align up with your agenda, what you want, you disapprove. You don't trust or follow Jesus because he doesn't live up to what you would expect of him, what he will give you, what he will do for you. And in Peter's response to Jesus, Peter essentially fails to see Jesus as a sovereign king and to treat him as a king. Because if you view and regard Jesus as king, you can't say, Jesus, if you give me this or fulfill my agenda, then I'll follow you, then I'll approve of you. No. If Jesus is king, he's Lord over your life. You don't speak to a king saying, I'll follow you if you meet my demands. You know, as I study this passage, 
I realize it can be very easy to stand as a detached critic of how this dialogue is unfolding between Jesus and Peter. It's like, man, this Peter dude, he's always doing some pretty stupid stuff, man, saying some pretty stupid things. Or think to myself, why is this blundering disciple so whack? And then critique Peter for doing what he did, such as rebuking Jesus. Like, you don't do stuff like that. But then I also realize I'm no better. I can claim that Jesus is Christ with my lips, just like Peter did, just a few verses earlier, right? But I can also have expectations of Jesus and fail to follow him, fail to trust him when my own personal agenda is not met. Jesus isn't giving me what I wish and desire. I have plans I would like to see fulfilled in the next month, the next year, the next five years of my life. I have dreams, I have ambitions, I have thoughts about the way my life should go and where I'd be in my career and my relationships by now. But what Jesus promises or doesn't promise doesn't seem to address my expectations. And maybe that's also how some of you have felt and thought about Jesus in life, when expectations are not met. When he doesn't seem to address the pressing desires of your heart. And brothers and sisters, I hope that what we learn from this and that you will take away just from this interaction, these first few verses is this, that you would see Christ rightly. That was what Jesus desired for Peter and his followers. And because his suffering is actually a demonstration of his love, his enduring of suffering, scorn, shame, rejection, pain on the cross, that is a demonstration of his love for you. The fact that he would not spare his life, but freely give it to die on a cross for you. That is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And yet Peter wasn't able to accept this truth in this moment. Jesus wanted the disciples and Peter to know that victory, salvation, comes only after rejection, betrayal, and death. And we're going to see why this is important for us as followers of Christ. But these things must take place in order to fulfill what had been written. By Jesus fulfilling the Father's plan of redemption, by enduring and facing what only he could face as the Son of Man who was able to reconcile us to God. This wasn't just an anticipated death of any person. It was planned. It was prophesied. It was fulfilled. So how does this, this passage apply to you and me? Well, I think one thing we must ask our hearts is this. Do you see Christ rightly? Or is following Christ a means to an end because of wrong expectations that you might have? When those desired ends are not met as you follow Jesus or set up as a precondition before you drop your proverbial fishing nets to follow after him. What does that reveal about your understanding of Jesus? About how you see Jesus, the Son of God? And are you driven to follow Jesus because you think by doing so, he will maybe give or grant or meet your own personal interests? Brothers and sisters, to follow after Jesus requires that we see Christ rightly. Why? Because if we have a wrong view of Jesus, the, his messiahship, we're going to have a wrong view of discipleship. 
Which brings us to our second point this evening. Here we find the essence of discipleship, the essence of faith and belief in Jesus, the heart of daily faith and following after him. Point two, following after Jesus calls you to radically die to self. Radically die to self in verse 34. Look with me. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This call to radically die to self, it sounds like a paradox to us, right? Clearly, we, we understand, like, well, he's not asking us to, to, to suicide, to, to kill ourselves physically, right? So it's, it's, it sounds kind of confusing, like a, like a paradox. But while it's radical, what Jesus is saying is, 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 is radical. It is basic Christianity. It is a basic description of what it means to follow after him. The simple essence of what it means to be a disciple. And all of us must listen. Notice the beginning of verse 34. He summoned the crowd with the disciples. This was a call to everyone who wishes to follow after him. This isn't two levels of Christianity where Jesus is calling some to be lukewarm followers or on the fringe wallflower of followers. This is required of all who come to follow after Jesus rightly and believe in him rightly. And he's getting at the essence of belief. For the gospel is good news that includes a response, a summons, an urgent and weighty call to repent and believe. It's the basic mark of Christian identity and how we are to view our reconciled relationship through Christ. We are followers called to die to ourselves. But what does it mean to die to ourselves? Well, let me tell you a story about what it's not. About 10 years ago, when I was living with other brothers in Christ from the old church that I used to be a part of in San Francisco, in my distorted zeal for the Lord and a desire to grow in self-denial and perhaps maybe prepare me to the possibility of living as a missionary one day in a rural, third-world, harsh uh, country village with scarce amenities and uh, a lack of the life comforts that we have in the West, I decided to, quote-unquote, deny myself by adopting a form of asceticism. I'm not encouraging. This is an example of what not to do, okay? I got rid of my bed mattress, and I began to sleep on the hardwood floor in, my, in the bedroom of my friend's house that I was renting from, even though it would provide me no support for the natural arc on my spine or my back, okay? This is what I did. Like, really, it's like a st oh, stupid single guy. That's probably what you're thinking right now. <laughs> but this is what I did, okay? It was cold because, well, you're sleeping on hardwood floor. And during the summer, it was hot because there's no ventilation for my back and it was uncomfortable. But I kept doing it for like a year or two. And yeah, <laughs> the kids are laughing. It's, that's really bad then. Uh, well, two weeks ago, I started doing the same thing again, not, not because I was trying to deny myself this time, okay? but because I moved my mattress to San Francisco already, but I had borrowed some moving blankets that Pastor Allen had from his recent move to, to Torrance. And so I've been sleeping on these moving blankets from U-Haul these past two weeks instead of directly on the hardwood floor at my place right now, okay? And so when Pastor Allen the Wise found out I was using his moving blankets as my mattress re replacement, he didn't praise me for being so zealous or acknowledge my growth in self-denial. Instead, he texted me this. That's ghetto, fool. 
Those things are so dirty. <laughs> Praxis, you can't get that kind of wisdom from fortune cookies, man. That, that's, all, that's why you're here. <laughs> well, that's why you have to come to Praxis. So where, where am I going with this? Well, to deny oneself isn't to do without something or many things. It's not an ascetic or self-rejection, self-hatred, where you seek to punish yourself in some sort of self-atoning, uh, self-justifying manner in, in a form of, of godliness or to follow after Jesus and his sufferings. To deny oneself is essentially die to self-will and submit to God's divine will. To deny oneself is to renounce living for yourself as a dominant element of your life. Denying yourself is saying, I don't live for myself any longer. Or to use the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, which seeks to answer the foundational life question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. To die to yourself means not having your life guided by your own interests. It calls for a life of surrender of control over your own destiny. It is the antithesis to the world's thesis that denying yourself is a bad thing. Dying to self and following after Jesus is the antithesis to you, do you is the antithesis to, well, whatever makes you happy. Church historian and theologian Carl Truman writes in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritizes victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. That's the main thing I want us to focus on. Define his or, own, uh, his or her own existence. All these things play into legitimizing and strengthening those groups that can define themselves in such terms. They capture, one might say, the spirit of the age, end quote. The spirit of the modern age that ridicules and scoffs at the notion of denying self places a premium on individualism and expressing that self in whatever way seems fit. But a greater call and competing ideology is at play that confronts your modern sensibilities when it comes to following Christ. It must die if you are to follow him. The defining of one's own existence and self-righteous morality dies when one believes and follows after Christ. You don't seek self-justification from cultural morality. Your only help in justification is the righteous, unblemished Lamb of God who is able to take away the sins of the world. That's Jesus. 
To follow Christ means Christ is supreme over cultural ideologies, philosophies, beliefs that are contrary to the word of God. To follow Christ is a call to hold every thought captive to the word of truth. How are you doing in this area, men and women in practice, in your thought life, in your ideas? Are you evaluating whether those things are truly in line with God's will, God's teachings? At the heart of denying self, it is an abandonment of finding one's own identity in your own. It is the line drawn in the sand to abolish a self-deterministic way of life. Denying yourself is on a different level altogether. I know sometimes we have false conceptions of what it means for uh, us to self-deny ourselves, right? Like my example of sleeping on the floor. Or maybe for some of you, it's like giving up eating chocolates or like fasting from K-dramas during Holy Passion Week, you know, leading up to Easter. But following after Jesus means a death to a me, myself, and I-centered life and begins a process of a Christ-centered life. His will, his desires, his honor. So that's the first part of what it means to radically die to self. The second aspect of what it means to radically die to self is to take up your cross. Take up your cross. But what does that even mean, take up your cross? Well, the cross, as many of us here know, it was a form of criminal punishment in Roman culture. It was a form of execution. It was a shameful way for condemned criminals to, to carry the crossbeams on their back t- uh, from the place of judgment to the place um, where they would be executed, and just like Jesus did. Yet Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, despite being subject to an instrument that only brought about cruel pain, shame, and suffering. Just as the cross is that path that is marked by shame, suffering, and death, here's the connection that's being made. Followers of Jesus must be prepared to expect the same. The predictions of Jesus' suffering from verses 31 to 33 that we covered earlier, they're intricately connected with suffering that his followers will encounter and to embrace for the sake of Christ. And don't misunderstand Jesus is not saying your cross is maybe whatever form or difficulty, whatever category of suffering you might be interpreting yourself to be going through right now. That's not what it means to take up your cross. It isn't merely in, even enduring hardship patiently. Taking, your cross, taking up your cross means readiness. It means re- attitude of resolve, a strong conviction that where Jesus has went, I am willing to go in order to be faithful. In the words of the popular hymn, it's the love of Christ that proclaims with his or her lips, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Praxis, we sing hymns like this regularly. But how many of us would say 
that and affirm that without hesitation. Just wait a minute. Really, Jesus? Go then all earthly fame and treasure? Myself? My unfulfilled dreams of maybe climbing the ladder toward career success and achievement? I'll let go of all of that? Yes, it involves a willingness to follow Jesus in sacrificial allegiance, a, a sacrificial service, to give him our all. A willingness to give up the things you once held dear, including your sinful idols, even good things you elevate as being greater than Christ. Even if it means dying for the sake of Christ, physical death, to that extent, to that level of intensity, you will remain faithful. You will remain true to him. And that's not to say all of us will die as martyrs, but are you willing to give your life for the sake and cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the honor and the fame of Christ's name in your life? That's the question you must ask yourself today if you want to follow Jesus. Or as you follow Jesus, Jesus saves us unto eternal life, but that also includes calling us to a completely new way of life. When Jesus calls you to take up your cross, he's not asking for a, a, you know, a modest tweak or adjustment or an additional layer or sphere of your life, like showing up to church maybe a little bit you know, more than once a week. He demands a complete overhaul of you an extreme makeover, heart and life addition. Jesus saves us unto eternal life, but that includes a totally transformed life. Consider the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Luther pastor that was uh, hanged by Nazi Germany prior to the end of World War II. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he understood following Jesus may be hard, but its end is glorious because Jesus is best. Listen to what he says. He writes, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first, Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. And that's, that is what it means to take up your cross, just as Jesus did. He's calling you to come and die. Come and die, Praxis. Die to yourself. Come to an end to your self-will, to wanting to live a self-willed, autonomous life, a compartmentalized life where Jesus is not your all. For those who are believers, consider yourself dead to sin and your idols of your former way of life, for you are alive to God and in Christ Jesus. So how should this affect us? 
I think when we read this passage, we tend to skip over the intensity and radical nature of what's required here. We might rationalize in our minds, oh, that difficult boss I have or that annoying professor I have to endure, my difficult parents that don't, I don't see eye to eye with, that I still live with uh, as a young adult, those are the crosses that I have to carry. But that would miss the point entirely. Taking up your cross is specifically connected with walking in Christ's likeness, in embracing his life. It comes from experiencing shame, suffering, scorn, abandonment, ridicule, harm, because you embrace the narrow way of the cross. Yet you are willing to persevere and endure because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe taking up your cross means giving up your search for comfort and security rather than risk your life for Christ. How do you even conceptualize of your job and your career? Does it fall under the dominion and the lordship of Christ, that you work heartily unto him, that you even consider your, your job and vocation? Every, every, every area of your life is under the lordship of Christ. Is just Jesus king over those parts of your life? Is your aim material well-being, gaining security and a comfortable future? We don't even have to talk about money as security and safety as cultural idols. What about the sort of security and safety? Not necessarily physical life here in SoCal, but what about reputation, right? The sort of reputation we have garnered for ourselves, wanting to preserve that, wanting to be liked by others, to please others, to be people pleasers rather than pleasing God. So beloved, I hope that you see that taking your cross is a wholehearted life commitment. Following Jesus requires you see Christ rightly. Second, following Jesus calls you to radically die to self. And our third and last point this evening is that following Jesus demands that you count the costs in verses 35 to 38. Look with me starting in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." How many of you here like math? Raise your hands. Yeah? I see some people laughing at this question. It's like ridiculous. I know there's a lot of Asians here. <laughs> I use a stereotype, typical joke. Not good, but it's okay. Last message. Don't put it on the website. <laughs> <clears throat> Jesus' words here. These demands... That you, this demand that you count the costs? What we're being asked here is to do the spiritual math and look at whether it pays off or not in life. Is following Jesus the best decision as you count the costs? What you must, may potentially have to endure and suffer for his namesake? 
in verses 35 to 38, we find several four statements. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world? Uh, verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his, for his soul? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me. And all of these things are, are, are layers, are, are reasons. And it's to help us to assess the profit of following Jesus, the benefit through these four statements. With each one, Jesus is building reason upon reason why following him is better, why following after Jesus is better. Psalm 49, verse 7 to 9 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can ransom another. No person can save you from the holy just wrath of God and address the biggest problem that every man and woman is subject to as being born with this sinful nature. And given this bad news, this reality about the world that we live in, in this adulterous, adulterous and sinful world where people pursue their idols, they're unfaithful against God, they're rebellious against God, is where we see the good news shine forth in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came to, to, to be the suffering Messiah, uh, to, to rise three days later, to die on a cross for our sake, and that we are able to follow after him and we will experience in the future eternal life. This is a spiritual math that we are to consider. If you decide to not follow after Jesus, if you decide not to believe in Jesus, there is a cost to that. There is something that you can lose that is more costly, that is more detrimental than what you could seek to preserve in this life whether it be material wealth, uh, whether, whether it be achieving all that you would have wished to achieve or uh, to have gained in this world. A house, a nice job, marriage, kids. But if you never thought through the decision whether Christ is supreme, whether Christ matters over all, you lose everything. If you approach life another way, if you approach life in this pursuit of satisfaction of self, without faith, believing the only one that could be the substitute for your sin, so you might be saved from his wrath, you lose everything. You reject Christ, you will be rejected in the future. To forfeit eternal life, to not see the value of your soul, your eternal destiny, to not see the infinite value of Christ compared to your measly investment in the idols of your life portfolio isn't smart. It isn't winning. You want to know what it is? It's a tragedy. It's Macbeth on steroids. You experience total loss. Do the spiritual math, worldly riches, success, fame, popularity the comfort and security of living a nice life that maybe fulfills your dreams. Treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Go ahead, but know your life story is that of a tragedy, not a Shakespearean tragedy, an eternal tragedy. Judgment awaits by a holy and just God who will pour out his wrath for those who reject him. 
those who refuse to follow him, but rather follow after themselves and their own wills. For they worshiped the things of the earth rather than the creator. You miss out on what is eternally better in the future and what is better in the present, following after Jesus. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That last verse is kind of scary. To be ashamed of Christ, to care more about this world, the approval of this world, the benefits of this world, in line with the sinful generation, those who do not know Christ, the fact that the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory. This speaks of the final judgment when he comes. When that suffering, seemingly weak Messiah comes victoriously with angels in all splendor and power. And the world will have to give an account. The world will fear and tremble. I think what this verse does is it helps us to evaluate for those of us who are in Christ what areas of our life are we ashamed before Christ? Are we ashamed of the gospel in the conversations that we have? Are we afraid to bring up Jesus knowing that we might be ridiculed, persecuted, made fun of? But think of the cost. The, the unbelieving friends and family members that you have who do not know Christ, who have not heard the gospel. That the Son of Man will be ashamed of them one day in the day of judgment. And I think that hits us hard because it challenges us to ask this question. How much do we value Christ and the good news of the gospel? Not just as a message to save the lost that we, we claim that we love, but for daily living in our lives. That we actually show our value and appreciation for the salvation that we have received. Oh, how great this salvation, this gift I pray that as a fellowship group, we would never take for granted the mercies of Christ, the grace of Christ, the great salvation that we, we have received from our, our wondrous Lord and Savior that we do not deserve. And really, that's, that's really what I want to leave uh, for you. I don't have any inspirational last words, just the Word of God, which exalts, uplifts, lifts up Christ, but a suffering Messiah, but one that is also an example for us, that we are also called to sometimes experiencing discomfort, suffering, and shame 
for the sake of living faithfully for Christ as young adults in this season of life. And that as we mature and grow older, whether you remain single, whether you get married, have kids, whether you're at this church or another church, that you would continue to see that following after Jesus, you never made a mistake. You never made the wrong choice. This is the best place you could be. This is the best investment you could ever made in your life by the grace of God. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the cross. The fact that you became a substitute for our sins, Lord. When we were rebels running a hellbound race, when we were seeking to live for ourselves, pursuing idols um, in a way that is like sipping salt water that could never parch our thirst as our hearts are restless. We're restless until we found you, Lord. I pray that you would grant all of us as a fellowship group, Lord, as fellow brothers and, Christ, uh, uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, a greater resolve to follow after you, Lord. But not in our own power and strength, Lord, but recognizing our weakness. But yet in our weakness, Lord, we could depend on you as a faithful God to help us, even through challenging times, even when there are unmet expectations that we might have with coming to follow you, Lord, that you might keep us walking faithfully with you on the straight and narrow path, Lord, knowing that this is the best investment that we have made, Lord. But it wasn't our own will choice to begin with, Lord, but we love you because you first loved us. Thank you again. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.